So I just kind of want to start, you know, not make this too state specific, but there is a, you know, principle behind this that any co-owner has the absolute right to force a sale of the home. So if you own the property with a few other people and you want out, you can force that to happen in the absence of other rules. But in order to make that happen, if you really insist on splitting up the property, it's going to be a long, expensive, and really contentious process. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. It's the Real Estate Law Podcast. And I don't even know what episode this is, Rory. Do you have any idea? 25 yeah. maybe? If we don't keep track, that way we can reassort them into different orders. <laughs> we can. Yeah. I do have a list, a master list somewhere, but we haven't been putting numbers with each episode. I think maybe when I write it up online, I post a number. But once again, it's the Real Estate Law Podcast. I'm Jason Muth here with attorney broker Rory Gill of Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. Hey, Jason. How are you? <laughs> like that's your cue to say hi. Beautiful day outside. Have you been outside yet? Just to get here, that's about it today. So I, I see in my window straight across from me, um, lots of other people out enjoying the day, but so far not me. Right. Yes. In the, in the fishbowl that is your office. If anyone listening is in Boston, uh, specifically in South Boston, uh, you could wave hi to Rory uh, as you're walking or driving up A Street from Fort Point and the seaport uh, into Southie. But he's got plenty of windows and he always waves at people when they, when they wave back at him, right? Don't worry. If you come by here, you won't miss me if I'm in the office. <laughs> that is true. Today, we are talking about breaking up. So I, I have bad news for you, Rory. Well, if we're going to do it anywhere, let's do it right here on the podcast for everybody else to hear. <laughs> well, that would be for spectacular content. That actually might, uh, that might make it onto the news. I'm sure that we get shared across, uh, across the globe if we actually break up live here on the podcast. But Anything for the likes and the shares. Yeah, I'm not intending on doing that right this second. But we do like likes and shares. So if you're listening, please feel free to tell a friend about the Real Estate Law Podcast. We're talking about breaking up with a co-owner of real estate. And I've indicated on this podcast before, uh, a lot of times we'll collaborate on a topic or it'll be a topic that, Rory, you bring you bring up. Sometimes I'll bring topics up, but most of the time you bring them up. So when you, you set this over to me, I say, we're just talking about married couples that are getting that are getting divorced. And you said vehemently... We're talking about everybody else who's breaking up. So we know how divorces work. People see divorces. But what we want to talk about are what happens when co-owners of property, except married couples, that's a separate story. What happens when they break out or have a falling out? And, you know, we're jumping deep into legal topics today. And actually, if I just talked about some of the principles we're talking about, it might seem kind of dry and boring. But... And this is actually where I've seen the most fireworks in court cases that I've had. Some of the most emotional situations, some of the most extreme uh, bad behavior uh, has been around this issue. You know, unmarried people breaking up uh, when they're co-owners of a property. And so I wanted to jump into that today and share a little bit of how that legalese can actually be um, really interesting and dramatic. You just mentioned unmarried co-owners. Uh, so these are people who they might live together. Maybe they're siblings. Uh, maybe they're friends. It's unlikely that they are if they're business partners and they're not married. You know, so it really comes down to like, this is a business relationship that went sour. 
Um, yep, or, yeah, so I guess if we want to be crystal clear about who we're talking about today, again, anybody who's not married. So it could be just an unmarried couple that bought a home together. It could be adult siblings that inherited a property together. It can be friends who went in in a home together or a lake house together or people who got together and invested in a property together. All of these different scenarios, you don't normally think about them breaking up, but when you own property, it's a really serious thing. And when they break up and that relationship falls apart, or if just one person wants out and wants to sell and the others want to hold on to the property, what now? What do we do about that? Right. Yeah. You know, people don't really think about this when you're entering a business relationship. I mean, like people are usually excited that they have identified a property, a business opportunity, uh, a way that everyone can make some money. So you kind of push forward with it with rose colored glasses on. And maybe you forget to do some of the important work ahead of time uh, in case there is a, a breakup or, you know, something that you need to dissolve your partnership or co-owning arrangement. Um, so that's what we're talking about today. Uh, you know, we like keeping it light, but hey, you know, this this happens this happens all the time. And this is how a lot of real estate comes on the market. Like, you know, I'm sure that if you're listening to this podcast and you're looking to buy something, you know, maybe there was a contentious breakup of a business owner's um, relationship that made a, a property available for you to purchase. Maybe there was a divorce that was happening and they needed to sell the house and now suddenly it's on the market. So, you know, it's an expression that I have and I don't know where I read this or, or you know, I didn't even make this one up, but like, you know, when lightning hits a tree in a forest, mm-hmm. tree comes down, right? But now suddenly you have all these little trees that can grow. And that's kind of what's happening right here. You know, like the big tree is the relationship. It came down, off everyone goes, but now other people are there to pick up the pieces and to grow right beneath the tree. They couldn't grow because the tree was there. And now maybe they can make something out of that situation that was bad for the initial owners. So with that, why don't we talk about some of these breakups? You know, so how and when do these non-marital breakups happen? So we could have just a laundry list of the different circumstances that make this happen. It could be that people invest in a property and one person wants out or one person needs the money because of something else that happened in their lives individually that mean that requires them to really need the money. It could happen in a personal breakup where one just wants to, to, to get out and start over, but the other one is going to cling on to the house for dear life. Um, that's one that I've certainly seen. It couldn't be um, adult siblings that are fighting over the, the childhood home that they've all inherited equally. And now, again, a couple of people have different plans for what's going on with that. These breakups, you know, it can happen in countless ways. Um, but that's, that's usually the origin there is some people have different visions for what's going to happen and combine that with a relationship that's a little bit sour or contentious. And that's going to, to lead you into this kind of nasty breakup. People are just going to fight um, irrationally over the house. And if it's family members, you know, these could be people that probably have been fighting all along. You know, you've, you've seen it before where the siblings just, they just don't get along. Something happened in the past. Uh, and now suddenly they have to work together uh, with some property they've inherited. Or sometimes this is what causes the drama, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, a piece of property that people have different opinions as to what to do with it. That could actually cause some of the contention among members of the same family. Yep. Absolutely. So just think of, you know, there are countless ways where we can have this problem and have it come up. So, you know, with that, you know, the question becomes, what do we do about that situation? Um, and what happens then? So I just kind of want to start, you know, not make this too uh, state specific, but there is a 
you know, principle behind this that any co-owner has the absolute right to force a sale of the home. Um, so if you own the property with a few other people and you want out, you can force that to happen in the absence of other rules. But in order to make that happen, if you really insist on um, splitting up the property, it's going to um, be a long, expensive, and really contentious process. So let's give a real world situation right there because people are probably listening to this saying, wow, yeah, that sounds like my family. Let's say there's four siblings, right? One of them, and they all inherit property from their mom who split up from their dad years ago and the mom didn't remarry and the property would then go to the kids next. Mm-hmm. So one of the children lives there. Just That adds absolutely, yep, that, and, that's a, a common complicator. <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh, and the other three now have claim to that property because mom passed away. One of the three who does not live there said, I want to sell, I want the money, I want to buy an RV and travel the country. Mm-hmm. What happens? Yep. So in that situation, um, if that the one who wants to force a sell wants, uh, wants it to happen um, and they can't get any friendly agreement in advance, they have to go to court. And this action in court is called a petition to partition. Um, that's the phrase that you should remember with this, the petition to partition. That's basically the name of a court action for a divorce of property owners. And that one person is going to basically be suing all the other co-owners um, to get an injunction from the court um, where the court orders how the property is sold. And that process alone, you're, at, you're suing your co-owners. So we're already in an adversarial stance. And then when you get ultimately follow this court case to its end, the judge is going to determine, the judge or the jury is going to determine how to split up the proceeds of the property. But there's a long road to go between filing that petition to partition and getting that court judgment in the end, both in terms of time, but also cost and process. Petition to partition sounds like the perfect craft beer for the brewery that we're going to open up someday. I think it's the petition to partition porter. I like that. Okay, so we're going to have like a legal themed brewery. That's my porter right there. All right. We'll be popular with a handful of real estate practitioners and that may be it. Maybe we'll set up shop right by the land court and everybody can come over after work. So, you know, the petition to partition starts with that lawsuit and it works just the same as the other lawsuits. But here in Massachusetts and in New Hampshire, the two states I'm familiar with, the court actually requires that the parties meet in formal mediation. That sounds great, but that's also in and of itself fairly um, all-encompassing endeavor, and it's expensive. Um, both states require that you hire a professional mediator, um, which is going to cost a few thousand dollars right there. You'll meet in a, you know, traditionally in a room outside of COVID and sit down at a table in an organized fashion, and the mediator is going to try to have you um, work out a settlement. That's a great idea because if this process is long, lengthy, and expensive, you could actually chew up all the equity that you have in the home trying just to force the sale. Um, the, this doesn't often happen when there are just tons of riches to spare. Often there's some sort of strife and that usually means that the property does not have a ton of equity. So the equity can easily be just absorbed by third-party attorney costs and court costs um, and commissioner costs. Um, so it's in everybody's best interest to think rationally and to come to some sort of agreement you know, in the mediation process. But in my experience, that's not usually what happens. If you even come to that point in the first place, often it's because somebody is not acting uh, rationally. And that person 
surprise, surprise, nearly is often irrationally at these uh, these hearings too. So I've actually never been successful um, at the mediation phase of this. It's a great idea. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense if everybody's acting in a rational capacity. But if the relationship is deteriorated, often that isn't the case and you're left disappointed and a little poor after going to the, um, the, the mediation sessions. Are the mediators also trained attorneys or how do you become a mediator? Often they are, yes, or um, a lot of them are actually re- um, retired attorneys or even retired judges um, make the best people for this position. And when I'm saying it's not successful here, I'm not certainly demeaning the people that do this for a living. I think it makes sense in lots of other cases and maybe other practitioners have been more successful in these mediations than I've been. But yeah, they're often former attorneys, um, retired attorneys, retired judges that'll um, go into mediation, but not always. Right. And are the mediators usually even keeled? Like, are they, they're, they're trained to make sure that any kind of elevated situation is kept on point. Everyone's working toward potentially a common goal. Like they don't take a side or anything, right? They no. a bad mediator would take a side, but a good mediator often has a trick where they will convince all, convince all parties that their case is not as strong as they think it is. Meaning to, inspire them to want to settle it and try to fight the, the case to the very end. So often they will try to knock down your confidence in your own case in order to make you more likely to settle. Now, all states don't have mediators, right? Or don't require it? Many do, but this is a direction um, as the courts get clogged and backed up, um, the courts really do want this process to work. And that's universal across all states. Every state has a backlog. Um, so they want, they want to send this off to an, an out-of-court site where people can negotiate and come to a settlement and take it off of the court docket. That way you're not wasting a judge's or a jury's time for a couple of days to handle this trial. Now you said most times, or at least in your experience, it has not been successful at the mediation stage. What mm-hmm. goes on next? Where do they go? So after that, it proceeds much like any other court case where there are discovery filings and motions in advance meaning that both sides will subpoena and just ask questions of the other side to gather all the information. So you have to gather, send the other side all of your documents. You have to have the other side um, do all of yours. You'll take depositions and prepare for the case. Now, the bulk of what you're doing right here in this case isn't necessarily debating whether or not the property should be sold, but you're trying to draw a case as to why your slice of the pie when all is said and done should be bigger than everybody else's. So you can end up with a lot of bank records showing all of your financial contributions, certainly, into the property, as well as any other documents that show the hard work that you put into the property. What you're trying to do is say that, proportionally speaking, you've contributed more and you've consumed less. So in the situation there where we're talking about the four siblings, you said one still lives in the property, one just wants to cash out and sell. And let's say a third sibling um, actually helped the parents out quite a bit by giving them money. Um, You can really get into a mess where just even 25% shares for all four siblings um, would not be fair. So you're trying to demonstrate that, you know, well, the other sibling used the house. I never stepped foot in the house, but I contributed all this money and time to keep it up. Um, So I should, I'm, I, I could justify a bigger slice of the pie when the money comes out. Right. The situation that I, I threw out there is one that, people find themselves in. Like they were born into the family, right? They inherited Mm -hmm. the house. It wasn't really a conscious partnership that they were entering and they just end up being in a business relationship with family members 
some of which are are not rational or are making the process contentious. But that's not always the case of a um, a co-owner. Um, mm-hmm. In many situations, people are entering into a real estate purchase agreement with, as you mentioned, a friend or a significant other or a business partner. And, and those are folks that are consciously entering mm-hmm. that relationship, right? So they're saying, we're, we're purposefully going to go do this. We together want to buy this real estate. And then years go by, something happens along the way. Let's not even get into the situation of one of the partners dying and then heirs jump, jumping into there. Because that, I think, would probably complicate a little bit more. But let's talk about a situation where the the partners, two, three, however many people, come together, buy real estate, and then they have an issue where they need to split up and they still own the real estate. What, what happens there? Sure. So if people went into uh, this kind of partnership and had titled it in, in their names, you know, all together then, you know, first of all, anything can go wrong in an interpersonal relationship. Other people could feel cheated or there could be some sort of um, outside distress that's um, forcing one person to behave in a way that's not good for the, the entire partnership. Again, you know, their, their other outside business went bust and now they're facing bankruptcy and they really need to cash out of the property. Any set of facts like that can really spin, um, can harm even the most rational, you know, the, the most rational co-ownership situation. Okay. Well, let's talk about some experience also, since you've been on both sides of this with attorneys and on your real estate side. And please do not name names. Like, you know, people might be listening to this podcast where uh, they, they've they been working with you in this kind of situation. But, you know, what's an example of, of something that might have happened in your past where a business partnership went sour? And, and how did you solve it? Granted, the business partnerships can resolve a little bit cleaner um, before we get to the point where we have to go to court. So, you know, you're trying to make the point, and I was making the point that even a, a rational business relationship can go off the rails given the right circumstances or after a bit of time. But those are the relationships that are most likely going to come to some sort of pre-litigation agreement. Um, again, if it's truly an investment, this whole process is not good for anybody because it's going to tie up the property and consume the equity that's in that's there. So those relationships will likely resolve a little bit faster. Um, and in those relationships, I've never taken it past the point of ha- actually having to file. I know that possibility is there, um, but it's um, those, those relationships tend to resolve a little bit easier. And more importantly, those kinds of relationships have often thought about this in advance. So the point that it would have to anybody entering into co-ownership, whether it's for personal reasons or if it's for investment reasons, is to have something in writing beforehand. What that does uh, by having, you know, in the case of a business, a partnership or operating agreement, or just uh, among personal relations, um, a co-tenancy agreement, what that does is it forces you to walk through these situations in advance so everybody's on the same page and you're not hastily getting together. So, you know, what happens when one unmarried partner makes more money and is willingly giving more money to um, to support the household than um, than the other. Well, what happens if they had to, to sell in the future? How do you divide up the equity in a fair way um, later on? And by doing that, you avoid the, the conflict later on where, you know, one may insist on getting majority, the other insists on getting perfectly half, and now you're, you know, stuck um, on the path toward the court case. But aside from just kind of getting everybody's expectations in line, having these agreements actually provides 
an outline for these cases when they actually do come to fruition. So if you have had to file one of these cases, well, court's going to look at that agreement. It's going to be a little bit clearer what's going to happen. So, you know, everybody's going to, to be able to see the future of how the court's going to decide the case. And that's going to help speed up any mediation that happens because that agreement is going to be the basis of any mediation. And that agreement is going to be the basis of any court decision if you get that far. What happens in a situation where uh, two folks uh, enter into a real estate transaction? Uh, maybe they are together as a couple. They break up. One of them doesn't leave. Like one of them says, I'm not moving out. The other one wants the other person to move out and, uh, and sell the property. Uh, let's say money isn't really an issue. You know, it's equitable with what their incomes are. What do you do there? So if you're... If you're smart and you can see the future, the, see this possibility, you'd write into the agreement what would happen in that situation. If one of the partners moves out, wants to sell, but the other one just remains on the property and makes it impossible to sell it. If you're, you know, if you can see the future and you're very proactive, you could write that into the agreement there, where in effect the consumption um, by that partner who remains in the property is going to deplete their their share of the equity when it does sell. So that's one way that that can be addressed and um, certainly in the future going forward. When you do hit, if you don't have the agreement, the court is actually going to look at that as a factor. It's going to determine whether or not the spouse who no longer lives there was cut out and constructively forced to leave or if they just chose to leave. Um, but in any event, the one who's using the property more is going to deplete their, their share in most cases. So we're talking with Rory Gill from Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal uh, here in Boston. We're talking about breaking up with a co-owner of real estate. And uh, you know the, the situations are, are plentiful. I'm sure if you speak with any real estate attorney, they will have stories to tell about situations where they've been to court or mediation with clients to try to figure out a way uh, to make it fair for everybody. Um, you'll, if you've talked to real estate brokers, you'll probably get situations also where they had clients that they sold their house because there was a messy breakup. Um, and maybe it was their marriage that was dissolving or something else. Uh, and a lot of reasons, uh, there's a lot of reasons why property does hit the market. I mean, not every house that's out there is because people were getting divorced, but you know, it's a strategy to go try to find uh, real estate if you're really uh, aggressive investor and you're pouring through court documents and seeing who's filing for divorce, you know, there could be some opportunities for you there. That's actually a good point for the real estate investors that are listening to the podcast. Um, I think it's pretty common to hear that you might want to look at the probate docket to see um, estates that are being probated. You might look at the divorce docket to see who's getting divorced. Another lucrative place to look for distressed properties would be in the various um, petition to partition dockets. Um, in Massachusetts, you'll see that in Superior Court, Probate and Family Court, and Land Court. So you have to look in three different places. New Hampshire, um, these are done in the Probate Court or in the Superior Court. So there are two different places to look. But these are also properties that are that are distressed where you may find opportunities to purchase off market. Um, so add this to your to-do list. When I think of distressed properties, I just think of like kind of that haunted house at the end of the block that is all boarded up and there's bats flying out of it. But that is not the case with a distressed property, right? You're just defining distressed property as what? I mean, I, when I think of distressed properties, I think about the, the circumstances of people there. You could have a beautiful house, but if there are tax liens on it, that's a distressed property because it's distressing the owners. It's, it's becoming, it's operating more as a liability for those who are there um, than an asset. 
Um, so th those are the ones that real estate um, investors might be on, be on the lookout for. Not only did I just describe what I think of as distressed properties, but like I literally have an exact house in mind that I think of as a distressed property because in growing up, I grew up outside New York City, um, just the street over from us. Like there was just this one house that my whole childhood was just always, it just was boarded up and nobody lived there and I didn't get it. I mean, you're you're a kid and you're walking around a neighborhood and your friends are in the neighborhood and there's beautiful houses and, and you know there's landscaping and there's cars everywhere and there's green lawns and there's this one house right there that nobody lived in it wasn't cared for and i was like i don't get it is that house haunted or anything i mean like halloween it would have been a great place to you know tell some really spooky stories uh with your kids but that's legitimately the house i think of when i think of distressed property and you know many years later like when i go back there to visit like it looks beautiful right now because somebody bought it and made it into a great house it's near where I grew up a few streets away. In the 80s, uh, a divorce happened. The couple abruptly walked out, abandoned the property as it was, and they've been paying the taxes. Um, so there's been no reason to foreclose on it, but the roof is falling down. In an otherwise uh, beautiful neighborhood, there's just this one um, unexplained house that has moldy shag carpets in it from the late 70s. And, but there's nothing that can be done about it um, just because the taxes are, are being paid. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that you are headed toward uh, a petition to pardon or you're headed toward a breakup with your co-owner. Rory, what are some, some steps or some tips that you would recommend that people should undergo if, if that is actually the circumstance that you find yourself in? Yeah, if you're unfortunate where you're, you feel like you're heading to, one of, uh, to a petition to partition, you want to gather everything that you have about the property and document everything. So gather and put together good records of all the money that you put into the property and all the work that you put into the property. Um, gather any documents that relate to the purchase or the refinance of, it, of the property. Um, certainly any agreements that you have if you have... If, if that's something that's in your possession, um, but gather everything that you possibly can. And then this is not just a cop out of an answer, but you want to talk to an attorney as early in the process as you possibly can, because the, the attorney is actually not, is going to prepare you for this case, but hopefully by doing so will actually avoid the need for this case to happen. Um, there is still the chance that the attorney can talk sense into the irrational party and also walk you through what maybe some unpalatable um, solutions, but remember that this, these cases can consume a lot of time and equity. So sometimes you may have to give something in order to, to be successful. And if that attorney you want to speak to is actually you, Attorney Rory Gill, how can people get a hold of you? I'm available at Urban Village Legal. You can see all my contact information, everything at urbanvillagelegal.com. Um, and you can also catch me at my brokerage, nexthometitletown.com. Cool. And if you found your way to this podcast and you're still listening to it uh, and you want more from us, uh, we have a bunch of episodes up on iTunes right now, also Google Play and Spotify, Stitcher, all the places where there's I, uh, where there are podcasts. We're also up on YouTube uh, and we have an Instagram page where we post full episodes, the IGTV portion of the next home title town real estate handle. So hopefully you will find us and follow us in all those places. Uh, we love comments. We love hearing from you. If you want to post them uh, publicly, hopefully they'll be good. Uh, if they're not, just send them to us privately so other people can't read those. If you want to give us a thumbs up, we also love thumbs up. We don't like th thumbs down, but we love thumbs up on all these platforms. And uh, we really appreciate your uh, listening or watching this podcast today. So Rory, once again, thanks for all the great info. This was a pretty uh, pretty interesting uh, legal, legal conversation. Uh, 
on the Real Estate Law Podcast. I know that we sometimes talk real estate, sometimes law, sometimes both. Uh, and this one certainly was headed uh, in the direction of, of, of what you learned at law school. Yeah, we went heavy with a lot today, but if anybody has any questions or topics they'd like to discuss, also get in touch with us. Um, we can talk about anything ranging from real estate marketing to uh, you know, heavy law topics. Yes, or breaking up with a co-owner. So, My name is Jason Mew. Thanks for listening. I'm going to go outside, enjoy the rest of this beautiful day, and Rory, I will see you later. See you later, Jason. Bye. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.